Get ready to hear the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth about the United States healthcare system. With your host of the Medical Truth Podcast, James Egidio. Dr. Flowers, welcome to the Medical Truth Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So for the listeners and viewers of the Medical Truth Podcast, a little bit about who you are and what you do and what you discovered. Yes, so I'm a retired radiologist. I've worked in two different continents, both in Europe, in the UK, and uh, latterly for the past 18 years, both in the, mainly in the University of California, both in San Francisco and in Los Angeles, and also over in Florida, in Tampa, at the Moffat Cancer Center. I've been doing cancer research for over 40 years now. And I took, I uh, noticed uh, when uh, the call was put out by Steve Bannon on the Warham that it was encouraging Naomi Wolf to get a group of people organized under her banner to investigate the Pfizer documents. I thought, I can offer my services. I'm retired now and don't have quite the same exposure as many of the doctors of medical freedom who've lost their jobs as a result. I was able to um, assess the initial tranche of documents and identify the low-hanging fruit, and that's how we got started. We came, we immediate, we were given, really. We were presented on a platter some very key findings which I think if I had realized what they were releasing, they probably wouldn't have put those in the first tranche because what's happened is we've had two years now of documents being dropped to us. They've been encrypted. Many of the PDFs have been provided as JPEGs so that our data teams had to do optical character recognition and get them into text format and then into spreadsheets so that we could assess them. And also the data has been dropped just a little bit here and a little bit there so that we're only now, after two years, getting the full picture for most of the people who are in the original clinical trial. So you can see, and now we can see why. We can see why the FDA didn't want these documents released for 75 years. It's very clear. Yeah. The thing is that the thing that got my attention, I was on Substack. I'm also on Substack. I contribute some content on there. And this particular article that popped up is this one that was dated, what, two days ago, actually. And it was a report. It was called Report 94. Pfizer secretly studied a heart damage marker, troponin 1, in 5 to 15-year-olds following mRNA COVID vaccination in 2021. So what I want to do is I just want to walk the listeners and viewers of the Medical Truth Podcast through this paper, because I know you methodically went through it uh, step by step, pretty much. And you started with something that was really interesting that I'll read to the listeners and viewers is you said, we warned that there was proof that the Pfizer B as in boy, N as in Nancy, T as in Tom, I162B2 Messenger RNA COVID vaccine caused heart damage in teens and young adults as early as May of 2021. So I think the most important thing is the timeline as we go along with this. And then you also go on to say, as more information surfaces, 
from the court-mandated release of Pfizer clinical trial documents by the FDA and via FOIA emails, the CDC's cover-up of evidence of COVID-19 messenger RNA vaccine-associated myocarditis in minors becomes increasingly serious. And then you go on to talk about that, and there's a kind of a specific timeline as to that. So let's just walk the viewers and listeners of the Medical Truth Podcast through that timeline of what you discovered, and we'll even talk about this study that was done as well and what it it revealed, the Pfizer 2-3 study. Yes, so the the key here is what is myocarditis? You've heard about myocarditis, pericarditis, things like that, as one of the acknowledged adverse events from the Pfizer BNT162B2. Now, just to be clear, that BNT162B2 is the vaccine that was given and made available to all um, members of the population in the United States. It is not something that was generally given to the rest of the world. The rest of the world got something known as Comirnaty. Okay, they got the original BNT162B2 originally, but in fact they got this new thing called Comirnaty, which is a sort of diff. It's a different formulation of what the U.S. population has been given. So that's just to put in context what this BNT162B2 is. Because to be quite clear, this is what we, as U.S. citizens, are being given uh, for so-called COVID prevention. And the other thing to remember is that this myocarditis uh, turns up normally just as an infection. We used to see occasional cases of myocarditis in teens, usually after a flu-like illness, things like that. And sometimes this myocarditis was so severe the patients ended up in total cardiac failure and they had ended up having to have cardiac transplants. Not a good thing at all. And the standard treatment if for anyone who has uh, raised markers, and those markers were something called troponin. And this is what's looked at in, in, that we're talking about today in the, in the blood, bloodstream, the troponin 1, is a marker of uh, damage to the lining and the muscle of the heart. That's called the myocardium. And uh, this troponin shows up in the bloodstream. It can be a very good marker of even mild myocarditis. What is myocarditis anyway? Myocarditis is normally, people don't even notice they've got it, but they can still have raised troponin. But mostly you get a bit of shortness of breath, maybe you get some palpitations until it becomes really severe, and then you get short of breath trying to do anything. So what the uh, standard treatment has been is to ban uh, people from doing sports until they've completely recovered, because you can imagine the adrenaline things pumping around as you're playing a game on the field, and if you're not careful, um, you're going to have an arrhythmia. That means the heart rhythm is abnormal. And often that means that the heart effectively doesn't pump anymore and you suddenly collapse on the floor, sometimes dead. And, of course, that is what we've been seeing. This is the sudden adult death syndrome that's become 
quite prominent and very and relatively common over the years since we've had this modified vaccine given to us. So that's the background to it. But it's really quite interesting that when I was looking into this, it's something I noticed separate from the Pfizer documents as I was looking at the severe adverse events. There was a, a signal of myocarditis. And I knew in the uh, medical reports that the, uh, there was myocarditis being reported in teens after the second uh, dose of the vaccine in particular, usually more in males than females. And this was in the region of sort of 16, 17, upwards to low 20s. That was seemed to be the common sort of thing. And so I want I you don't... to hold your thought for one minute, though. Mm. I want to back up just for a moment. Again, you mentioned at the very beginning of this conversation about the comirity and the difference in the formulation of the comirity versus the uh, Pfizer vaccine that was used here in the United States. What is the difference? Just as an overview of that real quick, then the, we'll go on. Is the only difference is, number. there's only one major difference, and that is it didn't require an EUA. It's the only preparation that's been approved by the FDA uh, for use, but not in the US. So that's what the, uh, the rest of the world have been using. And the only substance when you look at the vaccine is a difference in one of the things that makes up the constituents of the vaccine, not the mRNA, but the things that support the mRNA platform. And it's thought to be possibly less toxic. But other than that, they have the same issues that we can talk about later about process to all the DNA plasmid fragment contamination. Uh, and some of it is very high and it's variable between batches, which may also explain some of the adverse events that people are getting. Why do some have it more than others? Are you lucky with your batch? Yeah. Actually, the Povitoma developed the um, website, How Bad Is My Batch, um, to try and help people ascertain all their chances or check their relatives. Have you had a batch that is known to cause some of these serious adverse events? Yeah, I have that. Actually, I posted that, How Bad Is Your Batch, on the free resources page of, of the medicaltruthpodcast.com, where you can go in and put your lot number in, and it'll give you some of the adverse events that occurred with the particular lot number that's associated with vaccine that you received. But go ahead. I'm sorry. As far as getting back to this, this, this study then, this Pfizer study, I didn't mean to interrupt. I just wanted to kind of... That's no problem because people don't understand, certainly in the States, that we're not given something that's been approved. We're still use, being used uh, using this emergency use authorization, right. which really has no place in society when there's no medical emergency. You know, the, the fact is they've not removed this emergency status. And as a result, we're still taking this BNT162B2 and, and not being offered the other other one. So I think that's really important to clear up and just yeah. put to one side. Yeah. Don't you also think too, though, that because of this emergency youth use authorization, it takes the liability away from the pharmaceutical companies, the companies that have manufactured this stuff? There are many other reasons why the big pharma have been protected from any litigation. The fact that this was also a prototype under the other transaction authority under the Department of Defense basically prevents the U.S. government from doing itself. They're ultra-protected. There's the PREP Act that also protects them. 
vaccine manufacturers have been protected for many years. They were, they basically, they held the government to hostage that they wouldn't produce vaccines unless they were given liability protection. And right. this has gone to the nth degree now. Um, right. And this is something that really legislation has to be done to get rid of, of the PrEP Act. It has no place these days. We need to have, we need to have transparency. We need to have accountability, which is something we don't get when it's all done under this Department of Defense banner, under DARPA. Yeah. So you were talking about this study that took place, this phase two, three, obtained, obtaining serum for potential trop- troponin one testing. So go ahead. You were breaking down the age groups and whatnot on that. Yeah, so the, basically the commonest time that you're likely to get myocarditis, which before COVID vaccine was relatively rare. As a cardiology resident, I worked in the pediatric cardiology unit in Montreal Children's Hospital during my training as a cardiology resident. And we saw one case of myocarditis in the period I was there. So it was, it was rare when people were flown in. This was a tertiary hospital. So people get flown in from long distances away because they have trouble dealing with this sort of thing. So it was, as I say, it was, it was rare until COVID vaccines came along. And now it seems to be extremely common. And it was only just, say, two months after the introduction of the vaccine that people began to notice this uptick in myocarditis. In fact, a group in Israel pointed this out to their health ministry and they had a a publication in preprint and the Israeli Ministry of Health alerted the CDC that there was a myocarditis safety signal and this was in February 2021. Now, we didn't tend to get the vaccine. It wasn't really readily available in the US until uh, March. It was, that's when, March 2021 is when I had my uh, first and second dose of the vaccine back when I I was told it was all safe and effective and this was the only way we were going to get through COVID and I needed it for travel. I thought if I'd known what I'd known now, I would never have taken it in the first place. So they knew in February of 2021. And the happened was that they didn't acknowledge this until Commonarty had its full-scale authorization for use. The licensing was in October of 2021. That's six months later. And it was in their little addendum. You get a little sheet of adverse events, and it's actually in there. So they acknowledged it in the information sheet that accompanies the Comirnaty vaccine. But we didn't know about it. And of course, Dr. Walensky on the CDC was going on about how there was no problems, we could keep vaccinating, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it was a big problem. So this paper is what I'm, to, what I'm talking about today, is that the FOIAs that have been obtained by attorney Ed Berkovich showed that um, the CDC were working with the White House and the communications team and the FDA to cover up the fact that there was myocarditis going on. Uh, It was really serious. And yet, at the same time, they did this research study for COVID-19 in young children. And this was looking at taking troponins. This is called active surveillance. 
They didn't do that for the main clinical trial. They did no active surveillance at all. It was an observational study. But they did this for children. And you have to ask yourself, why were they testing troponin levels in these young children when you don't normally expect, that's not the age group, that uh, myocarditis normally affects? So they suspected something was going to happen. And I suspect that they were trying to cover for themselves either They showed that it wasn't, there were no raised troponins, so this is all fake news, or whether they're getting ahead of themselves and saying, yes, it occurs, but it's very mild. It was just evidence. This was all happening when they were saying there was no evidence of myocarditis. And And they were also encouraging the children to get vaccinated at the same time. And just as a parent, you think, why are the government thrusting this intervention on us when there are known side effects and they're aware that there may well be because they're testing for it there and then. So that's the people uh, paper you can see uh, on the screen right now is the right. one of the sheets that they put out to inform parents why they were doing these blood draws on the children in the study because they were looking for damage to the heart. So they knew this was going on the whole time, this myocarditis in these patients. But where were the pediatricians at the time that were administering these and seeing this stuff coming in? It is a big question. Now, the interesting thing, of all places, this was first reported in the Children's Hospital in Seattle, Washington. Now, you'd have thought such a woke city in a woke state might um, be (laughs) not wanting to, to put their foot out there. But in fact, that's where it came from first, which is very interesting. But that's when people were being perhaps being a little bit more honest about what they were seeing, and they didn't realize the consequences of what happened to most people when you showed the evidence of what was actually going on. The, to uh, the rest of the population, the key is that myocarditis is a big problem. It's a problem from youngsters to through teenagers, but more deadly around the teenage years and late early 20s. And this is, of course, when most young males, especially in high school, they're in the high school football team, they want to go on to college and perhaps get into the NFL. And if they have um, any sign of myocarditis, raised troponin levels, then what happens to their dreams of the NFL? What about their dreams of being a college football star? These are all put on hold. And in fact, there are very few people who make it through because of the, the damage that uh, goes on to the heart as a result of this myocarditis. In fact, the Dr. McCulloch has pointed this out too, is the, uh, the Kovic studies of the autopsies of people's hearts who've had myocarditis. They get these white plaques inside the heart, the lining of the heart, which is where the electrical pathways Uh, pass through and actually cause the contraction of the heart. So to pump properly, you need an intact electrical pathway, and you don't want the wiring, if you like, disturbed. And this white stuff, these fibrous bands, if you like, are thought to be an autoimmune effect on the heart as a result of the vaccine. And also they've done some staining studies, and they've shown the immunohistochemistry which shows the spike protein is embedded still in the hearts 
of these people who died. And this is from, these are from at least six months earlier when they were back, people were vaccinated who died suddenly. And we've been told for a long time that, oh, spike protein doesn't hang around. Spike protein gets eaten up straight away. But we do know from ongoing studies that spike protein carries on being produced. We've been in, our cells have been induced, our bodies have been induced to produce this endless supply of spike protein. That's how, how it was supposed to work. Right. But this spike protein was the worst thing ever that they chose. Yeah. And that electrical property you're talking about, that's the bundle of his, right, between the two ventricles, correct? That's correct. That the, There's two different uh, systems. There's the atrioventricular node that starts the heartbeat off. It goes right. from the top of the heart down across the atrium, down to the AV node, which then transmits it into the ventricles at the right time to cause the heart, the ventricles to squeeze out the blood. On the right side of the heart, it gets squeezed out into the lungs and your blood gets oxygenated. On the left side of the heart, the oxygenated blood is pumped out, goes up to your brain, and then round the aorta to the rest of the body. So the ventricular contraction is one of the most important life events that happens so many times every minute in everybody's life until they're dead. So it's very important that we preserve uh, the lining of the heart and the electrical bundles that cause the contraction. I guess the million-dollar question is the contents of this, I call it now, bioweapon and the mechanism of action. I go in, I get injected in the deltoid with this messenger RNA vaccine, they call it. What is in the actual vaccine? I know we've heard a lot of, there's a lot of sentiment from the likes of Karen Kingston, who says it's formulated with graphene oxide and, of course, the nanolipoprotein that surrounds the messenger RNA. And you've got the hydrogel in it. I know I interviewed Dr. Maria Mahelcha. She talks about the hydrogel a lot. She even talks about, of course, the graphene oxide as well. So it gets injected in me, in let's say your body. What's the mechanism of action? And what is, what's actually happening in the body once it's injected? Yeah, from my point of view, I, I stick to the three main components. First is the lipid nanoparticle that encases the modified mRNA. And that has been shown to turn up in uh, autopsies, in testes, and in the ovaries. Now, that is extremely concerning because, of course, there's likely to be an effect on fertility just based on the fact you've got these hard, fatty globules. Just You can see them almost making the reproductive organs larger from the stuffing. It's like, it's, it is really like stuffing on Thanksgiving. It's just all a mess inside of your main organs that are producing stem cells to produce sperm and ova to bake a human being. And that's that is extremely important. And the other aspect of the lipid nanoparticle is the fact that it was used to transmit across membranes, so across the blood-brain barrier into the brain. Blood-brain barrier is extremely important to protect the brain from toxins, but also it can cross the placenta and get into babies when you're pregnant, which is why Pfizer were very careful in their protocols to say that Pregnant women should not receive 
uh, this experimental treatment. Uh, but also the lipid nanoparticle fuses with cells and injects the mRNA into the cell. Uh, that is one of the key problems because injecting the mRNA into the cell, you get the rest of the contents that's in that vaccine, which are these DNA plasmid fragments. That's the so-called process two. I don't know if you've had the opportunity of having an interview with Josh Kreutzkow, who's from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, who was one of our co-partners working on this process two uh, that we identified together. It was actually hidden at the end of the clinical trial. They had 250 people injected with this process too, which was the new manufacturing way that Pfizer were going to scale up uh, their production of this vaccine. And the way it was done was using E. coli, mm -hmm. and they're called plasmids. And those plasmids are like duplicated. It's almost like a <clears throat> photocopier, makes multiple copies of the, of the thing. And then you have to break these up with protease to get out the bit that you actually need. Part of the problem with these DNA plasmids when, is that they contain all sorts of foreign proteins, promoter genes, things like that. So one of the things that's used to make the lipid nanoparticles and the mRNA stick around is something called SV40, the simian virus 40 that is used to prolong the extent of the hanging around of the modified mRNA, if you like. And that is known to cause cancer. And so we're worried about that. And there are fragments of that um, SV40 promoter gene found in the sequencing studies that have been done by multiple biochemists in the US and in Europe. And people are finding it all the time. Not only that, there are all sorts of other things that are there. There was one very early paper back in 2021 when they were looking at the spike protein that they found one of the E. coli endotoxins embedded in the spike protein, which is dangerous. But then you've got the spike protein, which is what's made by this modified mRNA, which gets into your cells, makes your cells produce the spike protein, right. which was then thought to produce the antibody which you were supposed to use. It's a very unusual journey that they went on. Why did they do this? There's, there's so many questions there. There's so many theories. But basically, it is, it's a manufactured virus, or at least a manufactured spike protein, because it had the furin cleavage site in it. That is the N-uridine uh, cleavage site within the spike protein, which is not found in nature. It's never been found in bat viruses before, which indicates the lab-grown nature of the vaccine. And of course, from that, you can't say whether this was a, a deliberate release or it was an accidental release. But either way, it's a it's manufactured by humans. Thank yeah. you, Barda, and the Department of Defense. Yeah. You're talking about that, the technology you're talking about, the E. coli, that's been around for many years, I believe, with the, in the pharmaceutical industry with the recombinant DNA and the manufacturing of a lot of medications where it just self-replicates and uh, produces that. Uh, targeted medication. For instance, I remember many years ago when they used to isolate the anterior pituitary, I believe it was, for somatotropin hormone, right? And they used to take it from cadavers. And then they used that recombinant DNA technique to 
manufacture synthetic, more or less synthetic lab-made somatotropin hormone, the amino acid, that long chain, for children that had suffered dwarfism. So then that way it was a lot uh, more cost-effective and they didn't have to isolate it from cadavers. So that's been that technology's been around for a long time. Now I know this new technology with the messenger RNA, they're now saying, and I even interviewed Dr. William Makis, is that they're manufacturing pretty much all the vaccines with the messenger RNA technology moving forward. And that's for pretty much everything, not just COVID. It's for all vaccines. Is that true? Yes, that, that is true. It's even, it came in last year, really, with the flu vaccines. You had to be very careful you, if you wanted to take a vaccine anymore. The, the, one of the ones was the, the recombinant one, which was done, which was an, a modified mRNA vaccine. But going forward, yes, indeed, the RSV shots, all the new shots that are coming out are based on that platform. Now, in theory... In theory, that could be all right if the DNA plasmid contamination is cleaned up. And I understand you've also had Hedley Reese on your program before. Yes. Um, and Hedley Reese is very hot on the manufacturing process and has pointed out all the issues that have been involved in the production of this COVID vaccine and other mRNA vaccines. And especially, it was originally um, noted also by the European Medicines Agency, who asked for more information from Pfizer about the degree of contamination. Um, but that since has been silenced within the European Union, and they've shut down any discussion about the quality assurance processes and what's called good manufacturing practice, which is a standard across, or at least was a standard across the world, um, but you can rely on um, your medication. You want to know if you're taking something that's supposed to do you good, has it been made properly? Does it contain anything that it shouldn't do? These, right. these are basic things, aren't they? You know, and, and that's now being thrown aside. And the sequencing that's being done by Dr. Burkholz in South Carolina, for example, and by Do uh, Kevin McKernan, also in his lab, have shown the extensive contamination of the vaccine, and they've tested it across multiple batches, left over, and some intact batches that have never been used and have been kept at the right storage temperature. So you can't blame it on the fact it, it was held at the wrong temperature or anything like that while it was open, because it contains these contaminants. There's no way. There's no way around it. It's an objective thing. You can measure these things. The question is. Why are they still allowing it? What is the reason that they're staying silent? How much of this is is due to a big pharma basically regulating themselves? Yeah. There are so many questions that arise from this. As a just as a scientist, I come to all of these things with a skeptical mind. And science always, as you come to this, you've got this, the settled science, and then. What you do, the first thing you do is you question it. What about this? What could I do better? You're always trying to improve things. And yet now, if you live in France, you're in trouble because you are not allowed to question mRNA vaccines. 
I yeah. don't know if you've noticed, know, known about that, but that's been recently passed in the French Parliament, and there is going to be trouble, I'm sure. Pockets, this will probably spread. And, and significant pockets yeah. made significant headway in trying to convince parents they shouldn't vaccinate children. I was just looking at new data today from Orange County, California, with more than a few schools showing between 40 and 60 percent children not vaccinated. You could say this is a, we're a victim of success. In the countries where you have measles all the time, nobody gets confused about this. Do you get mad about it? I get more mad about the deaths we're not avoiding. I spend my time on the countries where you still have, in the case of measles, over 300,000 kids dying a year. In the case of diarrheal diseases, over a million a year. There's six million kids a year still dying. Why aren't we getting vaccines out in Africa for diarrhea, for respiratory disease? Why don't we have a vaccine for malaria? Those are the things that I, um, I push forward. I wouldn't say I get angry, but I'm uh, really impatient that uh, we're not moving as fast as I'd like. So I think that's who leads the narrative a lot. Of, when you have people like Bill Gates getting involved with this, and he's got his claws into the um, whole vaccine program, you start to have this extensive immunological training. So I think you have to start questioning the integrity of the medical system as a whole and the pharmaceutical industry as a whole. And then you have professionals such as yourself and even Karen Kingston, like I said earlier, who discovered that there's the hydrogels and the graphene oxides that are formulated in these vaccines upon isolation. And then there's a Dr. Achildes who talks about this being an intentional payload to, and a lot of people say it's conspiracy theory, as a payload for connecting more or less people to G and to quantum tattoos and all this other technology. So I think what we're seeing is man meets technology or biology meets technology. What's your take on that? I haven't, the only evidence I've actually seen was some analysis of the wastewater from a city in Philadelphia, or the Philadelphia area. And we were going to get uh, publish this, but unfortunately the people who provided us with the information, we couldn't, they wouldn't provide us with enough information to, to vet the information correctly, or enough or at least enough to uh, put out there uh, in, a, in one of the publications on Daily Cloud. And this showed the wastewater with these strange unusual tubular structures that look like sheets of, of something that's rolled up, which will be consistent with graphene oxide. But with the sequencing and other analysis of the vaccines so far, I haven't personally seen any evidence of the particles basically caught, being evident. But I understand the concern, but my concern is, has been up to now mostly on the Pfizer documents and Moderna documents and what do they actually show? So I'm trying to I'm trying to keep mostly on in my own lane, and I yeah. leave those lanes to others. Okay. Per, perhaps we could go back to I think one of the most important points is the big farmer control over the narrative, and you asked me specifically what about the pediatricians at that time? Why weren't they noticing? Why weren't they speaking up? 
uh, one of the things that was noted very early on was huge amounts of money were being spent by Big Pharma to the the Academy of Pediatrics, for example, American Academy of Pediatrics, mm-hmm. for example, and OBGYNs and internists were actually being paid to ensure that the, their people uh, were vaccinated. They got incentive payments. And there was a silencing of any criticism towards the vaccine. And so there is definitely, and as well, remember that the FDA is mainly funded by, by outside money from Big Pharma. It's right. not actually what it used to be. I presented in front of the FDA over a decade, and 20 years ago, 30 years ago, I remember doing this. It was not like this. It was totally independent, and they were really strict. Down to, I was thinking, there was a, this is absolutely insane, the amount of paperwork and things we had to produce to prove that it was perfectly safe before we could even introduce something in a research study. So it's gone from that to being... The, the narrative is driven by Big Pharma. They own the outlets, basically, brought to you by Pfizer. Everything's brought to you by Pfizer or Moderna or GlaxoSmithKline. They control the news. They've actually said that in their uh, statements, that they wanted to drive the narrative. And then you've got the aspects of big tech, silencing critics, silencing questioning, which is a basic uh, scientific thing you do. This is what science really is. As I said before, is questioning the narrative, right. finding out is there something that we're missing? Is there something we can do better? And that's not been taking place, and it is frowned upon. We're now told you've got to believe the science, the science of Dr. Fauci, not science, what right. we've all gro- grown up with. There is a controlled narrative which never used to be present, and it concerns me greatly because we are, as humans, we do question, but are we being controlled that we don't question anymore? Why are we being brainwashed not to question statements put out by the authorities? Is this in a lead up to something? We just don't know. This was discovered as early as, I believe, 2021, you're saying. Here's an Israeli... Yeah. So we're talking what's maybe not even four or five months after the rollout, correct? Very shortly. The EUA was on the 11th of December 2020. The first people to receive the vaccine were in the UK. The majority would give vaccine uh, at that time. And the first supplies in the US started coming through in January and February, where they were being given uh, preferentially to healthcare workers. Um, because they thought they would protect the healthcare workers. And then the general public began to be offered it in March. So this is before I was offered it as a doctor in my local hospital. My primary care didn't let me know that it was available until March 2021. Mm -hmm. Yet in February 21, they already knew that. And it it takes two minimum two months to get that sort of um, information together. And that's why... It is so jarring that information was out there that early and they covered it up. And the evidence was in in those foyers of the CDC conspiring with the White House, trying to come up with a narrative uh, that everything is safe. And then Walensky went out on on TV, 
promoting the scene. And these are the FOIA emails. And this is the, this was what, October of 2023, correct? This was That's, re- that's right. We just, we've, we did that in the late fall. Yeah. And this was all part of the 75 year release of any information by Pfizer, but then it gets what leaked? How's the information get disseminated? No, the, the, this, that's not correct. This is totally separate to uh, the Pfizer documents. These are FOIAs done by our attorneys group, the volunteer attorneys, that we, when we identify areas of information like the myocarditis, so when I produced my first report on this in March of 2020, showing that there had been uh, a signal and the FDA and CDC likely knew about it um, back that was in October, in certainly in early 2021, we started asking questions. We actually started writing to attorneys general that we thought might be helpful to ask the questions. That didn't work out very well. And eventually we managed to work on the FOIAs and earn them down so that we could actually get information. And this is one of the, the several FOIA emails done by our team, not the Aaron Siri group um, that got the original 75-year banned uh, documents. Okay, so there is a difference between that 75-year documents versus yeah. what you guys uncovered. Okay, that's yeah, right. This, we're still going through these emails. There, there are so many of them. Um, Amy Kelly did quite a lot of this work when it first came out while we were working on the other documents. Um, she was sifting through with a keen eye on looking for this myocarditis thing, story. And um, she found all this and first pointed it out to me that this is what they'd found. So that's why we wrote the reports as a result. Yeah. So a lot of this, these FOIA emails are redacted from what I take too, correct? (laughs) There's some pages are just black. I I saw that. What they do still say, it says from the office of, of POTUS, it indicates it's White House and then it's black. So they didn't share. They have not shared the the talking points that they developed. They did a sort of PowerPoint slide deck, and those were all redacted. They didn't want us to know what they were actually saying as a group, because otherwise it'd be very obvious. You you could actually go. I'm, I would love to make a video of it. Here's the slide of the talking points, and then picking out all the talking points from the various news shows and things from all around the world, all saying exactly the same thing, which is what tends to happen. When you know it, this is like the voice of God. You have to say this. Then it happens on every channel. It probably has all the financial information as to what stocks to buy on what day. It's <laughs> <laughs> probably what it is. It's got somebody's name in it that doesn't want to be revealed. You know that, and I know that. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. We're in a we're really, we're in a really interesting time in the medical industry. I think, and in general, it's just. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens here in the near future. It's the worries of transhumanism, the neurolinks, all these other things that are going on with artificial intelligence. Yeah. The fact that they're they're talking about using AI in the discovery of of new treatments, which you can guarantee will all be mRNA-based. Of course it will. Sure. The revolving money machine. Yeah. I did a little research myself on uh, a lot of the companies that are actually manufacturing the biotech companies. And lo and behold, I uncovered that 
90% of these companies that are manufacturing these mRNA vaccines are, guess where they're from? No other than China. They're Chinese companies that are doing business in the United States is what they are. That is very unclass allowed. It's a bit like buying up Chinese nationals, buying up or Chinese entities, buying yeah. land around uh, military installations. You know, yeah. Why would you do that? And what's really frustrating about it, though? <laughs> right. That, that's the thing, too, is it always goes back to the politics of the, where you live. And neither political party is really doing anything about it, to be quite honest with you. I just don't think they really want to do anything about it. I think they have an interest in it. All of them do. They all have um, to make a lot of money. They go in broke and they come out of Congress extremely rich and move into a lobbying job. Exactly. So I think that's what it's all about. May, may I tell you a, a quick story about sure. a, a, a medical student I was, I was a mentor for uh, back in the University of Nottingham in the United Kingdom. He went into public health. He eventually became a professor. And he used to be on the uh, daily interviews with Boris Johnson, the prime minister and the, and the health minister, Professor Jonathan Van Tan who, as the public health representative, really should have been managing the balance of risk versus benefits when it comes to a vaccine. And he had all that information. And he decided after two years now, he's um, now working part-time for Moderna. He has been given a very lucrative job at Moderna. And what's so his name again? From promoting the vaccine, Jonathan Van Tam. Jonathan Van Tam Fauci is his last name? No, Tam, Tam is <laughs> Yes, I know no. <laughs> Yeah, that's, a, that's a, it's sad. It's really sad. It's sad, but he, he was a nice guy. He was, a, he was one of the Vietnamese boat people, families that were rescued. They came, they were refugees in the UK. He'd succeeded at school and he got a place at med school. And, and to end up being manipulated and not even doing what I believe is his job of, of actually balancing risk versus benefits when he knew all that information. Now, we are presuming that everything that we are seeing now, the FDA, the CDC committees, the MHRA in the UK, the European Medicines Agency, and the TGA in Australia, had all of these this information when they came in their countries to authorise the use of the vaccine. Now, they, may, they could just turn around and say, actually, it was all hidden from us. We were just instructed by the FDA, everything's fine. We've reviewed it for you. But they haven't done that. And I no. can't understand why they didn't play the blame game and move on. They could escape a lot of the problems, but they haven't done. And I'm following this up in the United Kingdom when I'm over there uh, with one of the members of parliament trying to get to the bottom of this. But transparency in the UK is very difficult. There's going to be a general election coming up. Um, either party are graduates. It doesn't matter whether you're Labour or Conservative. It's the same government, basically, just with a few changes on one side or the other. Yeah. It really is like a, a uniparty, just like we, we seem to have in Congress right now. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This is, I think, all part of this so-called great the Great Reset. And I, like I said, I think it's where technology meets biology is what it is. And there's no question about it. They let you know about it. And we've been informed. There's enough information out there by now 
that this stuff is dangerous. And I've said this many times on many episodes of this podcast, is I personally know eight people that died suddenly from it. And one was 30 years old. I don't know anyone that died from COVID, not one person that died from COVID, but I know eight people that died from this vaccine. So that seems to be common common practice that you're either finding people who are dropping dead or suddenly someone who used to have cancer got over it, suddenly have got cancer and they're terminal. Right. Or they've had a, 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 a minor cancer and suddenly it's become very aggressive. And again, it's changed type and, and become really life-threatening and difficult to treat. And as a cancer specialist, this really bothers me because we don't know why this is happening. We know the baseline, why it's probably happening. We can't even do the basic science. We're not allowed to ask the questions. That's obvious. There's this excess deaths are now occurring. It's documented everywhere across countries that have received the vaccine. But people don't want to ask the question that, oh, it's um, they were all locked up. They all had depression. They turned to alcohol. That's why they died. <laughs> yeah. We're in a really dark time in the medical industry. I know I was in it for a long time, over 20, most of my life, but 24 years with a practice. And we're in a, we're in a very dark time in the medical industry. And it, what's really sad about it, too, is you have the doctors such as yourself that are, are well-intended and want to get the information out there. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have the doctors that are participating in this because they don't want to lose their jobs and they're intimidated and they're scared by the upper echelon, the upper level management that are running the hospitals and the clinics. So it's as a patient, you're in the middle of it. A person who's a patient is in the middle of all this mess. It's what do you do? Where do you, who do you trust? Where do you go for help? You well, know? I think the first, thing you, the first thing you do is you question, you say, qui bono, who benefits? Right, And if you go to hospital, they say, I'd like you to have this, or I'd like you to have that sort of treatment or that test, ask questions. Sure. <laughs> ask who, who's actually benefiting? Is this for your bottom line, your, to line your pocket, or is this something that's actually going to benefit me? If I have this yeah. treatment, what's my risk? What are those potential adverse effects? What benefits are we going to get? When I was working in cancer treatment, the one of the things, the tools we used to use to talk to patients about chemotherapy and radiation therapy and hormone therapy was a tool that gave you a risk. You, you took all the data from the tumor, so it was identified specifically treatment for that patient's tumor, not general, but very specific. Mm -hmm. And so you saw, oh, you've got to, if you have this and that, you're going to have a 2% reduction in your risk of death. Now, wait a minute, if your risk of reduction, if your risk of death is pretty low, and you're going to reduce it by 2%, why would you take chemotherapy? Right. Or, or have radiation? So if there was a big benefit, the patients could then make that determination themselves. They, they used to ask, what do you think I should tell I said, the evidence is that you help them come to that their own conclusion, but you explain to them what this actually means in real terms, rather than, oh, you, we can reduce your risk of dying by 2 We could give you another 5, 10 years. That's not quite how it works. It's very much percentage-driven, and it's really not entirely accurate, even with all the different uh, DNA markers that we use. So it's it's tough. You've got to you've got to always balance risk versus benefits. Patients need to ask that sort of question. You need to question your doctors because I think if more people did that, maybe doctors would start to question themselves again and put the questioning attitude back inside of them because it's always been there. 
but maybe it's laid dormant for the last two years. And we've got to awaken that interest in questioning again. Yeah, I know. I was just reading recently, I believe it was on Substack, an article about the how these modern day med students are being uh, trained and they're putting things like gender, they're more focused on gender studies in, in medical school rather than diagnosing and treating and all this politically correct garbage. And it's really sad. I even did a solo episode on that, eight good things to look for in a doctor and healthcare provider. And that was one of them is hire a physician that's over 55 years old, for goodness sake, because at least that physician comes from a generation of physicians that were trained to learn how to diagnose and treat and not worry about someone's gender and how to identify, how to approach them and their gender. Yeah, you're right. It's, you really have to get more than one opinion from a physician. I had a guest on the Medical Truth podcast. His name is Chris Wark and his podcast is, it's Chris Beat Cancer. And he basically said the same thing. He was diagnosed with stage three colon cancer like 20 years ago at 24 years old. And he had the tumor surgically removed and he did follow up right around Christmas of that year when he had the tumor removed. Him and his wife went in for post-op follow-up for treatment with chemo and he refused the chemotherapy. He and his wife did not like the way that they were treated. They were treated like he was treated like a number and they walked out of the office and he told me they were bawling their eyes out. He says, and I just had to make that decision not to take any chemotherapy after the surgery. He says, and I just went on a raw diet and a juice diet. He says, and I've been, he's been cancer free ever since. Never went, the cancer went in remission and the tumor never came back. There's a good example of someone who made a right choice. Yeah. How many of us have made bad choices in our lives in the last few years? Yeah. Yeah. I even had a doctor. Taking the vaccine in the first place. Yeah, I even had a doctor that came on my podcast, Dr. Dominic Brandy out of Pennsylvania. Same thing. He had gotten diagnosed with cancer as well, and he went on a natural raw diet, and his cancer went into remission. And here's a doctor. He's a, he was, I believe he's a plastic surgeon. But I really appreciate your time coming on to the Medical Truth Podcast. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, doctor. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Medical Truth Podcast. For the latest episode, go to www.medicaltruthpodcast.com. You can also find the Medical Truth Podcast on Rumble, YouTube, as well as the major podcast platforms like Apple Podcast, Spotify, Substack, and iHeart. <laughs>